Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Atlanta Business Radio. I'm Katie Galley, and I'm joined today by Corey Rick because it's a very special episode of Tuesdays with Corey. How are you doing, Corey? Very good, Katie. Thank you very much. So uh, what's been going on with you? Well, uh, today uh, we have a great installment on Tuesdays with Corey. And of course, what we do on the show is we talk about the many positive contributions that female executives are making to their companies, communities, and industries. And today we have an excellent show. We are joined today by none other than Katie Galley, who is a, cor- familiar. <laughs> who is a corporate uh, member of the leadership team here at Business Radio X. Katie, welcome. Thank you. We are also joined by Rhonda Small, who has vast experience with businesses located uh, both in the United States and abroad. Rhonda, welcome. Thank you so much. And also Lindsay Combardella, who is the CEO of Translation Station. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you so much. Well, Katie, we're going to start off with you. Okay. <laughs> you went to high school in New Jersey. I did. And then you came down here to go to school at Oglethorpe. Mm-hmm. How did... Did you have to escape the winter? I mean, how, how exactly? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So um, I grew up in New Jersey, but my both of my parents, um, my mom grew up in Georgia. My dad went to Georgia Tech. And so uh, I have an older brother and a younger sister. And um, we all just envisioned one day coming back down to Georgia. Um, and uh, I, when I was applying for schools, my parents, they used to actually go on dates to the Georgia Shakespeare Theater on Oglethorpe's campus. And uh, they just knew that I would like it because it was a small school, small atmosphere. But a big selling point for me was I really wanted to run track in college. And it's a small Division three school. So I just... I uh, When I visited the campus, I fell in love with it. And I wanted to be a D3 athlete. So that was what I, I decided. Just moved from New Jersey down to Georgia. And then my whole family actually followed. My brother went to Georgia Tech. My sister went to Georgia Tech. And then I went to Oglethorpe. And my parents didn't see a reason to stay in New Jersey anymore. So we all moved down here. <laughs> so you're a bit of a trendsetter. Uh, <laughs> you know, from reviewing your bio, you did a lot more than run track. I mean, you made it to the NC2As. You had a great career there. Thank you. How did, how did you balance being an athlete and school? Because mm-hmm. well, you did well in school too. You didn't just show up. I mean, you did well <laughs> there also. I liked school. It was fun. But that was the beauty of being... You realize, um, you realize a college student that says that she likes school. I, I heard that <laughs> one, right? It's, I know I'm a nerd. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I loved school. Um, but that that was the beauty of going to a Division three university. It allowed you to really be... I mean, it, the term student athlete, it really promoted being a student first and an athlete second. And um, what I really loved most about track, and I mean, being an athlete at any university, really, you have that structure and you have that schedule of, I have to be at practice this time. I have a, a meet this weekend or a competition this weekend. And you have to backtrack. So you see what uh, assignments that you have do or what tests that you have. And you have to um, work your week around that. So... It really um, helped me kind of develop a schedule and develop time management. So it, um, I really didn't have an excuse to not be a good student and a good athlete because I was given all the resources to do so. It was outstanding. And also, if I saw this right, when you were there at Oglethorpe, were you really an RA? I was. I was a resident assistant. On yeah. purpose? Yeah. <laughs> I loved being an RA. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was just for my senior year, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I got to uh, do different activities and implement different events um, for my campus. And then I got to um, just, I also got to live alone, which was pretty nice for my senior year. So. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you enjoy what went with that? Yeah. 
I learned a lot of leadership skills and it really forced me out of my comfort zone. Um, one of the big things was I struggled a lot with public speaking and just being in front of people and interacting with people in general. So being... You know, in, none of us believe that <laughs> at all. I mean, the, to say that I'm in podcasting now is kind of... It's ridiculous for me to think about, but it's true. I mean, it's at that time, it was so scary for me and it really forced me out of my comfort zone having to interact with people and deal with them, especially if um, you know something went wrong, having to be in the midst of a situation and kind of deal with that. So when you were in school, you were an academic All-American. Is that right? Um, I never quite made it to academic All-American, but I was on an all-academic team. So you had to be top five in the uh, the nation to be... Or top 10 in the nation to be all-academic, but or an academic All-American. And so I was on an all-academic team, but it was... I didn't make it into the top 10. So as an athlete. What events did you do when you were uh, running with the track team? My main event was the triple jump. Um, so it's kind of an obscure event. It's a hop, skip, and a jump into the sand. And uh, I also did the 100-meter hurdles. And it was on the relay teams too. So so when you, when you graduated from Oglethorpe 2015, mm-hmm. walk us through the first couple of jobs that you had and tell us about your thought process there. Yeah. So when I graduated, I really... Um, I felt really lost and aimless. I didn't know what I was going to do next. Um, I applied for a bunch of jobs. I went on interviews and I just... um, I got some job offers, but I just really didn't want to enter into corporate America because truthfully, um, the only thing I ever wanted to be was an athlete. I wanted to go to the Olympics. I wanted to... I had high aspirations in that arena. But when I graduated, my the triple jump being my main event, I was five feet short of even qualifying for uh, Team USA. And so that wasn't even... It was just an, a completely unrealistic dream. So the advice I received from um, college counselors and advisors was, well, you know, you have to get a real job, which is very sound advice, but I just didn't want to do that. And um, so I ended up... I moved back home for a while. Um and my dad and my mom have been serial entrepreneurs their whole life. And so my dad said, you know, if you want to try, you know, come up with an idea for your own business, then um, you can just... You're living at home. So just try it. Why not? So I came up with a, a dog bed business called Mallard Made in the USA. So I had an old lab at the time and he struggled with getting up out of his bed. Um, so I created or I designed a bed to help him um, kind of stand up easier with the way that it was embroidered. And it was Mallard made in the USA because I was holding tight to the Olympic dream and I wanted to represent my country in some way. Um, so I learned a lot about contract sewing and manufacturing in the US because that was my, you know, my selling point was I wanted my products made in the United States. So um, I had my dog bed business and going back to the time management and the structure, trying to keep um, you know, a schedule for my day. I also started a Disney blog because I love Disney. And um, I just wanted to... I woke up in the morning, wanted to have something to do and then um, you know, set up my routine, set it up for success because that's what I had been taught through sports. So I had my Disney blog. Um, and one day I stumbled through Etsy and I saw a woman who um, started her own Minnie Mouse ear shop and she was making do-it-yourself projects. And I thought it was really interesting. So I reached out to her and asked if I could send her questions over email to interview her for my blog. And she sent them back and she was so excited. And um, I published it a week later on my blog. And then that day, um, I had gotten more hits to my site than I ever had before. And it was because she shared it, her family shared it, her friends shared the post. Um, and I just realized I kind of tapped into this niche of telling people stories. And then, you know, I kept telling people stories. I went into this Disneypreneur 
thing. Um, I, my blog focused on people who had shops um, centered around Disney. And then um, kind of morphed from there. I, I learned about podcasting and how that's a better medium um, to tell people's stories. So I just started a podcast and I changed the name to Keep Moving Forward because I realized I didn't want to just interview Disney people. I wanted to interview people I looked up to my whole life. So I started interviewing athletes too and other entrepreneurs. Um, and today, I mean, fast forward two years now since I've started Keep Moving Forward, it's niched into focusing on former um, collegiate and professional athletes who successfully transitioned out of the world of athletics and into the real world because that was the resource I would have wanted when I graduated. I would have wanted to hear these stories to help me successfully transition. Yeah, that that's extremely helpful. Obviously, it's very helpful, you know, having been a college student, uh, well, let's just say some time ago. <laughs> It would be very useful to have somebody that has real world experience to come back and say, hey, you know, do this, not that kind of a thing. Yeah. One thing I noticed that um, you obviously love animals and you did an mm -hmm. internship uh, in a veterinary office. Is that right? I did. Yep. For a summer. No aspirations to become, you know, a, a veterinarian or anything? I did. I, yeah, I did want to be a veterinarian for a while. I mean, I did learn a lot at that internship, um, but it just, I realized I didn't want to... Uh, I didn't want to be in school for that long. I was really ready to get out and do something. So um, I just I decided not to go the route of veterinary school. But yeah, I, I did love pets. And that was another facet of why I started Mallard Made too. How did you land at Business Radio X? So I, my, I guess it was my one year anniversary two months ago. Um, last year, I was featured on a show here. It was called Biz Radio U. And it was hosted by Kennesaw State University students. Um, and I met um, two of the students who hosted it. They were doing a rapid rapid networking event at KSU. And I went there and I met them. Um, and they invited me on the show. And after the show, Lee and Stone came in the room and they were just talking to me about my podcast and what I do. Um, and they said, if I ever want to just meet up with them and talk to them about uh, a business model or whatever I'm trying to you know, learn about, they were very gracious. And they said, I could set a meeting with them and come in. So I did. The next week, I set a meeting and I came in, talked to them for about two hours. Um, and I left feeling so excited because they had helped me so much. And then a week later, they reached back out to me and asked for me to come back in um, because they wanted to know if I wanted to do some you know, work with them and just interim work to figure things out. Um, and it's it's been a year and my role has grown with them. I just can't get rid of me now. <laughs> and it's, I mean, being in this room and having the opportunity to listen to these stories and sometimes take part in these stories and um, speaking with individuals, I've developed more relationships with people than I ever um, I ever dreamed of in the past you know, three years since I graduated college. Yeah, they've done a tremendous job of branding. And I think that yep. um, the Business Radio X brand is synonymous with building relationships. And, um, you know, you've been a tremendous support here for my show. And that whole story that you just told sounds uh, uh, very, very familiar. <laughs> so you've been a producer, you have your own podcast. Um, I, I want to know more about your Keep Moving Forward podcast, which I think is very cool. Thank you. Um, tell us more about that. Yeah. So um, like I said, it's I interview primarily uh, former and, and some current professional and collegiate athletes who successfully transitioned out of the world of athletics and into the real world. So that sometimes looks like they started their own business, whether it's a gym or um, it really doesn't have... Sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with athletics. It's just whatever business they started or they entered into corporate America, how they've grown and how they've um, achieved high levels of status in their current job. But it's all about what did they tie themselves to? And it's using 
everything that they learned um, in their athletic experience throughout their entire lives to help propel them forward. So it's keep moving forward, utilizing everything that you've learned your whole life, specifically in the athletic contents um, con- context to help propel you forward. And that was very much my story. And I learned it was a lot of people's stories because when I did graduate, I was desperately looking for a resource to help me. And I was, you know, lamenting and it was a little dramatic, but really my my whole life revolved around the sports. So when that organized athletics were no longer there, I didn't know really who I was. I felt like I lost my identity. So I would go online and look, um, read blogs of people who felt the same way, but there w- didn't seem to be any resource out there. It was people really just taking to the internet and being upset about the fact that their athletic careers were over. So I wanted to create a resource that someone could go to um, to maybe help them in that transition. Who are some of the most interesting folks that you've interviewed on your podcast? Um, my fate, well, I, I had a lot of favorites, but... Uh, Early on, I had the chance to speak to Rudy Rudiger. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, from the Notre Dame football player. And they have that movie after him. I, I love Rudy. Um, and uh, That Vin- was a great movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's so inspiring. Every time I need to pick me up, I go to that movie. It's, it's my go-to movie. Um, Vince Papali. He was a, another an great story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Invincible. That's a great movie. Um, Evander Holyfield, the the boxer. Um, he, he had a great story to tell, Absolutely. too. Um, well, I've had Shannon Miller and Dominic Mociano, some uh, Olympic gymnasts on there. Um, and a lot of too, just um, teammates that I've had, people I've interacted with and, you know, from division one to division three athletes, pro athletes, it's really interesting. Just the whole gambit. I mean, from if you were a club athlete to a pro athlete, it's everybody has such an, an amazing story, but it's all tethered to the point of going through that transition of loss of identity and trying to rediscover yourself after you're no longer an athlete, but always using what you learned to help propel you forward. Yeah, I think, you know, certainly some great stories are Rudy. Um, you know, for those of you that don't know, that's the story of the, the, the gentleman that wanted to play football at Notre Dame. And, you know, I don't know how much of the movie is accurate, but he, <laughs> yeah. he stuck it out and he was uh, uh, on the practice squad for a number of years, ended up getting to suit up for a game. Just a great, Great story. Yeah. And Evander Holyfield, of course, is also a great story. And it's yeah. not widely known that when he was uh, a senior in high school, he was only, what, 5'8", 150 pounds? He was a little, yeah. And then he, <laughs> he got his growth spurt after high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who would be your dream guest for your podcast, do you think? Right now, my dream guest is definitely uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So um, when I released episode 80 back in October, I decided to do a... 20-week social media pursuit to try and get him for episode 100 of my show. Um, And it was... I just took to social media and I would tag him and I planned out all these posts. I actually made a video of me doing some athletic things to try and get his attention. Um, I applied for his... He has a new show coming out called The Titan Games. I just... Every day I would post at him. I had a reminder on my phone telling me where I was supposed to post, who I was supposed to tag and everything on social media. Um, And while I didn't directly reach him by episode 100, I grew um, in listenership. And I just had a lot of people rally behind me and get so excited about the prospect of having The Rock on my show. And so it was... While I didn't necessarily get him yet, I did actually skip over episode 100. It's reserved for him. So I went right to episode 101 because eventually I I believe I can get him for episode 100. Um, but just in really, case you're listening, Dwayne, we're holding that Yeah, one. exactly. So it's still open. <laughs> Whether it's next week or in 10 years, I just... Episode 100 is for him. Um, but really just what I learned over that 20-week process of how people will really just get behind you if they believe in you, believe in your mission, um, they want to support you, they want to see you succeed. And that was that really was the most incredible thing that I learned from that. So. so 
other than, do you still run now? Do you, do you run races? Uh, you know, you obviously look like you're in excellent shape. How do you stay that way? Uh, so I ran my first half marathon two weeks ago in Disney World, actually. And? It was, it was a lot of fun. How was it? <laughs> it was so much fun. Um, I stopped and took a lot of pictures and videos, but it was a great experience. And um, when I, you know, still, when I graduated searching for what I was trying to do next, I still tried to find myself in sports. So um, I played every sport I could find in Atlanta. I joined a basketball team. I played rugby for a while, soccer, did road races. Um, and I actually eventually found CrossFit. I, from a, a friend referred me and she said that I would love um, just the atmosphere of it and the competitive nature of it. And I did. I fell in love with CrossFit. And rather than playing all these different sports, I just decided to focus in on that. And I'm actually a CrossFit trainer too now. I'm a coach um, right down the road from here. So, Outstanding stuff. <laughs> So if you could give the younger version of Katie some advice, <laughs> what would that be? Um, well, I guess I think back to just uh, the mindset I had when I graduated college thinking, you know, I just that sports really were it for me. Um, and <clears throat> just recognizing that even though I was an athlete and that's what I hung my hat on my whole life, that there's so much more than that. And it's it's not that everybody who's an athlete has to be, has to turn pro or your life has to revolve around athletics your whole life. It's what did you learn in that process? What did you learn? The leadership skills and um, the time management skills and everything that you learned, no matter what season of life you're in, you can carry it forward with you. So um, it's really just to keep moving forward through every transition and every season that you're in. If there was a young lady that wanted to follow you in your footsteps, what what would you tell her? Um. I mean, I would just tell her to to persevere. One of the taglines of my podcast is giving up is for rookies. And it's from a, a Disney movie. But um, and it's kind of silly, but I I like that. It's just continuously persevere because it's you might hit a wall, you you might fail, but just fail forward and never stop pushing forward because um giving up is just, you know, you're accepting defeat and you shouldn't just don't ever do that. Just giving up is for rookies. So Katie, if our listenership wanted to get in touch with you, uh, do you have an email address or a phone number that you could pass out? I do. Um, you can get in touch with me at, uh, right here, Katie at businessradiox.com. And um, you can follow Keep Moving Forward on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Keep Moving Forward Podcast. You can follow me at Katie Galley 45 That's the number 45 because that was Rudy Rudiger's number. And um, you can go to keepmovingforward.us and subscribe on iTunes to my podcast. Katie, thank you very much. Continued success. You've been a great guest. Uh, thanks so much for everything you do. Thank you, Corey. All right, Rhonda, how are you this morning? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're here with Rhonda Small now, who has a vast amount of experience in businesses with families and just a, a really uh, incredible story. And you graduated from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, right? I did. I uh, I think I got in when all you needed was a pulse. Today, University of Wisconsin is a I, lot I, harder I, to get into. I, I don't believe that. Uh, it's a great school. It's a great school. It is. Yeah. And not coincidentally, I think I shared with you, my niece, Morgan, is graduating from law school there this weekend. So I will be, I'll be going up there to uh, engage in those festivities. But um, did you grow up in Wisconsin? Is I that did. how you landed there? I did. I'm a native Wisconsinite. Whereabouts? Uh, I was born and raised in a town called Racine, which is... Oh, I know uh, exactly where it is. Racine, yeah. It's kind of between Milwaukee and uh, not quite Chicago. Chicago's a little further south, but it's on the lake. It's, it's a very nice town. It's an old town. It's uh, uh, It was a great place to grow up. It really was. I was blessed. So 
let me ask the, the, the important question. Are you a Bears fan or a Packers oh, fan? Oh, come on. You don't even need to ask that. So you you're, have a, bear, to be you're a, Packer. a Bears fan? No, 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 no. No, Packers all the way. You know, well, they're, they're not going anywhere this year. Well, not, they're not going to beat my Vikings. Let's just get that faith, out there. Hold the faith. <laughs> all right. So you started off working corporate. I did. Dow Chemical, mm-hmm. Carter Wallace. Tell us about your experience there. Well, when I graduated from University of Wisconsin, I actually took my first job at a radio station uh, selling airtime. You know, it, it was a tough economic situation back in the uh, early, well, the late 70s. Um, once I decided that I really didn't want to sell airtime for my entire life, I went into the corporate world and uh, I had some very very good experiences. I sold in primarily immunology products because I worked in a, in a hospital lab all while I was going to school. So it was kind of a marriage between what I did just working my way through school and after I got my degree. Um, and then I met my husband who was a Southerner and he said, you really don't want to stay in this tundra, do you? And I said, well, probably not. So I got transplanted to the South. When did you move to Georgia? Uh, 82. 82. Mm-hmm. 1982. Was that a hard transition moving from Midwest uh, to here? Well, it was because all of my family, all of my friends were primarily up, up uh, in Wisconsin. And um, I don't tell many people this. Of course, a whole lot more people are knowing now, but I only saw my husband three times and we got married. So I really didn't have a friendship base with him because I didn't know really a whole lot about well, him must, or his family. He must have been a tremendous salesman. Well, he was more than a tremendous salesman. He was a tremendous guy. Yeah. But um, so when I when I moved to Georgia, fortunately, uh, I got a transfer with my job with Dow Chemical. So work kept me busy. Um, we started, my husband started different businesses. And then we had children and opened up our first Harley Davidson dealership in 1986. Where did you do that? Uh, well, here in Atlanta. Our first dealership was in Smyrna, which we later moved to Marietta. Um, and along between that dealership um, moving, we had another son. So I have two boys. So I helped out somewhat with the dealerships during that period, but not you know extensively because we had young children. So we opened up another dealership and then another dealership. You know, things like that happened. And I wasn't really actively involved in the dealership. I was, you know, I knew what was going on. I would help out if they needed it. But um, primarily I was staying home with the boys. When you helped out the dealerships, what what roles and tasks were you uh, performing? Really, I would come in on Saturdays if we were having special events, you know, and just help out wherever they needed it. Uh, you know, if I needed to help somebody fit them for a helmet, fit them for a jacket, you know, help with motorcycle parts, whatever it was. But I wasn't there on a full-time basis. But when we did have events, you know, it would draw a very large crowd. So we really needed all hands on deck. How many Harley Davidson, you know, um, dealerships did you own? Did your family own? Well, we had two here in Atlanta. We also had a Honda dealership in South Carolina, and my husband was partners in some other entities. Did you have one entity or one partnership or one business that you liked better than another? Well, I think that the Marietta store always, you know, held a place in my heart because it was our first dealership. And we opened that dealership right after our first son was born. Um, We developed so many good friendship customers. You know, I mean, I know that customers really aren't your friends, vice versa, but the Harley industry is a little unique in that way where um, your customer base is family. And and that's one of the premises of Harley-Davidson, you know, and one of the beauties of them, that 
they're one group of people. One day, um, just ironically, I was waiting for my husband to go to lunch and I was looking at the parts counter and there was two men in business suits and there was a couple of guys who clearly were construction workers. There was a woman and they were all talking. And when we left, I told my husband, I said, you know, where do you see in a business where there's this different dynamics of people, ages, you know, whatever. And they were all just happy as clams talking about bikes. It seems to me that the Harley Davidson brand has done, they've done a tremendous job with their brand, but it's kind of a galvanizing thing because that is a big connecting point with people. I mean, everybody, it seems to me that everybody knows, oh, it's a Harley Davidson bike as opposed to X bike or Y bike. And it has this sound of thunder. Yeah, it has this aura of quality and, 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 and kinship and family. And that's, I mean, I don't even ride a motorcycle. I could fix that. I'm sure you could. <laughs> um, but it, it, they've just done a lot of things really well. In addition to making a great product, the branding and just the, the mystique of owning a Harley. It um, is the whole package. You know, it's the nostalgia. It's the camaraderie. It's, it's the family of it. Um, you will not find a more generous giving group of people than Harley riders. Yeah. Yeah. That, that has been my experience also. Now you owned a separate business in Marietta. I did. I got involved um, with a business in Marietta. There were five of us, uh, a woman that I knew through my church's husband bought this old house and it was a great house and he was going to tear it down. And she goes, no, that would make a great, you know, gift shop kind of thing. And he said, well, you're not doing it by yourself. She said, well, if I can get four other people with me, can, will you not tear the house down? So she got us and we opened up a, a business called the White Rabbit Cottage, which was great. My husband's problem with it was I was spending as much at the Mart on our own house as I was probably putting merchandise in there. And uh, we got involved in other dealerships and things that got very busy. So I did back out of that. But it was, it was just a lot of fun. We've had a lot of vast business experience. And I think you and your husband were instrumental in starting a call center. We were in the Virgin Islands. It was other dealers. Um, we fell in love with the Virgin Islands and uh, so did some other dealers. We went down there for a meeting and they said, wouldn't it be nice to be able to you know, do something down here? And it was at a point where uh, St. Croix was still economically not very strong after Hugo trying to rebuild. So they had a program down there called EDC, the Economic Development Corporation, where we opened up a business and hired locals and we were a call center to the motorcycle industry, not just our own, but any any variety. Um, so if you purchased a motorcycle, purchased you know a product or parts, and you got that call back, which you frequently do from other businesses, your car industry, whatever, and say you know how was your service, sure. that kind of thing. The call was actually originated in the Virgin Islands, but it would essentially sound like it came from the actual dealership. How did you decide to locate it there? Well, through the Economic Development Corporation, um, it allowed us to have a home down there, and um, you know basically lived down there for quite a while. Did you find that that gave you uh, the feedback that it required? Did it help you in your business? The, the feedback that you got from clients that had you know, just recently had service or an interaction with you? Actually, it did. And I'll tell you why. In, in your business, if you have someone in your business that is making these calls and they get some negative feedback and that person that the negative feedback is right in the next office from you, they're not as likely to tell you, you know, hey, there, you know, we made an issue here, that kind of thing. And it didn't happen often, but we found that, you know, having having more of a third party do it, um, we got very honest feedback, we got direct feedback, 
And they were very concise because that's all they did. So they could pick up on a lot of things quicker. And um, by having it in the Virgin Islands, I don't really know how to explain it, but the people there ended up really feeling like they worked for you in that business and they had a deep love of your business. Hmm. So it worked well. Uh, that's outstanding. Do you have, do you still have the call center? No. Um, some of the dealerships like myself, you know, we're no longer owners. And most of the people that were involved in that um, have also sold their dealerships. So we disbanded. You've had uh, some experience with uh, transition and family businesses over the last 10, 11 years. Uh, would you mind sharing with us uh, what that entailed? Well, my husband um, was killed in a crash uh, about 10 years ago, maybe 10 years ago this October. And at the time, he also had cancer, but um, he didn't die from that. He died in the crash. And at the time, you know, having cancer, you think, well, you always have more time. You know, things were, you know, doing a little better. So when he died, it was very um, obviously unexpected. And from a business standpoint, um, I was not deeply involved in the dealerships at that point. I was, you know, superficially with my husband, you know, talking about different things, blah, blah, blah. But I wasn't there on a day-to-day basis. So I found myself kind of plunged into the deep end of the pool. At that point, we had several hundred employees. And, um, you know, I remember going there and telling them what had happened and looking at all of them. And all I wanted to do was just, you know, let me crawl in a hole for a little while and, you know, figure this out. But then when I looked at all of them and I thought, oh, my, these people have families. They, they want to know that they're secure. So, you know, it was a, a tough time. It was a tough time. You know, I had two boys that were 18 and 21 at the time that, um, you know, when they lose their dad, it's yeah. the whole thing. It was bad. How old was your husband when he passed? Uh, 57. What were some of the first things you did after your husband's passing to transition the business, to, you know, get control of it, to get perspective on it? What, what were some of the first things you did? Well, when you own a, a, a dealership with Harley-Davidson, it's not a franchise. It's a dealership agreement. And thankfully, you know, I was on the paperwork for all of that. But um, something interesting did happen. Uh, we had someone who was supposed to go to a class and one of the employees got a call and um, they wanted the credit card. And that employee at that time mentioned that uh, the name on the credit card was Earl Small, but that he was deceased. Well, I don't know what happened, but it triggered like a shutdown of banking and, and the whole nine yards. It was incredible. Wow. Um, yeah. So uh, since my husband died out of state and it was going to take a while to get him back, paperwork back, whatever, um, I learned a lesson of a, every person, man, woman should have their own bank account. They should have their own credit card, even if you only use it to keep it open and you should have a stash cash. I mean, I was not, you know, in a bad financial situation, thankfully, but um, I've told a lot of my friends, you know, everything that I had was tied to my husband. My name and his name were on everything. So um, it's really not a bad idea to have some separation there. But once we got a lot of the legal things under control, um, I learned that I had to just dive in with with both feet and take take a hold. Thankfully, we had wonderful managers. 
without that, I don't think that I would have survived. You know, I had a team of people who were very supportive. It was a well-oiled machine thanks to how my husband ran things. And we carried on. Yeah, you clearly have done that um, under some extraordinary circumstances. What, how did you rectify and, and handle the, everything sort of being frozen after you know, they learned of your husband's passing? Well, I couldn't do anything until I got a death certificate. Yeah. And that had to come from the state of New York, which is where he passed away. Um, but it took probably two weeks. And anybody that runs a business, you know that having bank accounts in limbo for two weeks can not be a great situation. So thankfully, you know, I appealed to different people at banks and said, you know, hey, you got you to gotta play ball with me here. And, and they were helpful, but it was a shock because that was one of the things that I never in a million years would have thought I would have to worry about. I had a hundred other things, but not that. Yeah. But I really think it's important for all people to, you know, have things in order, have a box where you have everything. And like I said, you know, have a checking account in your own name, even if you keep, you know, a minimal amount in there. What were some of the things that you needed to do once that got sorted out, the banking and things being frozen? What were the events that led you to uh, uh, divest yourself of the dealerships and in your family? Well, um, you know, I had the business in St. Croix, so we were living down there. I had a son in, in college in Orlando. I had two elderly parents that my sister was trying to deal with. So I literally made a run from Atlanta to Orlando to St. Croix to Wisconsin and back. And I did that for quite a while. Um, we had talked to our general manager about purchasing the dealerships um, before my husband passed away. So unfortunately, you know, in 2008, we all know the, the economy was just not great. So in order to make a lot of these things happen, they didn't happen when we wanted to. So I stayed on as dealer principal for several more years um, until we could get everything lined up for our manager to then assume um, ownership of the dealerships. So. You know, it was just a a matter of making sure that everything at all different points were running smoothly. Yeah. And going through all that, you know, the death of a spouse, you know, still having a teenager, having businesses in different locations, um, selling to the manager was really a good thing at that time. You have other interests that you give, devote your time to. I do. I do. I um, I own an airport which was something that my husband purchased. Uh, he eventually, when he retired, wanted to make it a, a flying community, you know, have some houses there and just have people who love aviation. Um, and I also got very involved with the Esophageal Cancer Awareness Association. My husband had esophageal cancer, which is a cancer I had never heard of until he was diagnosed. And then when I found out what it was, he could have been the poster child for it. And there's a lot of other people out there who unfortunately could be poster children too and don't know about this cancer. So I'm on the board of directors for that. You've had uh, some tremendous life experiences. You, you've done a great job of managing in some difficult situations. And, you know, I just want to commend you for that. Um, if you could give the younger version of Rhonda some advice, knowing what you know now, what would that be? I would, I would have gotten involved more with some kind of a charitable organization earlier. My husband and I did a lot of philanthropy as dealers to all different kinds of charities, but we never really focused on one like I have about esophageal cancer. 
my mom had heart disease. I, I, I wish that back in the day when I was younger, I would have gotten more involved with the Heart Association or another charity because I think that it helps you build a lot of different things with your character, with um, life experiences. After hearing um, Katie talk so much about what she's learned at a, at a young life, mm. um, I think that that would have been a good thing for me to get involved in earlier. I didn't do it soon enough. If there was a young lady that wanted to follow a, a similar track, what advice would you give her? I would probably say when things get thrown at you, they're not problems. There are things that you can step forward and learn from. And if you get flustered, if you get sidetracked, if you let them, the balls getting thrown at you, totally keep your focus and all you're doing is looking at the balls that are thrown at you instead of the ones that are going beside you and not hitting you, you miss opportunities. And I think that when you get flustered and when you get frustrated, you're not seeing an opportunity. You're looking at a problem. And it took me a while to learn that. Well, Rhonda, you've been a great guest and uh, you're a testament to uh, persevering and hanging in there and, and just sucking up and getting things done. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, either via email or via phone, how would they do that? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I am on the board of directors for Esophageal Cancer Awareness Association. You can get me through uh, ecaware.org. Um, I can also be reached at Stockmar Airport, which is in Villa Rica. It's one of only 34 privately owned general aviation airports left in the country. And um, I'm happy to talk to anyone. So thank you so much for letting me come in. You've been a great guest. And, and thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning, Rhonda. Thank you. Be well. Lindsay, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Lindsay Cambardella is the chief executive officer of Translation Station. That's correct. So what does Translation Station do, Lindsay? Sure. So we are what we call a language service provider. Some people say language service company. <clears throat> and we have a full range of services. Um, if you need an interpreter, which is in, in spoken language exchange uh, or a translation, which is a document um, language exchange, uh, we can do any of that. We can do transcription from videos, um, the A to Z of language service needs. Uh, however, our bread and butter is on-site interpreting um, for several industry or any industry really, but our biggest clients are the legal sector, the medical sector, and the education uh, sector. So if I was a non-speaking, non-English speaking uh, person and I needed some medical care and, you know, you might send somebody out there to kind of tell me, you know, sort of, you know, translate what the doctor's saying to me. Is that kind of what you would be doing? That's exactly right. So um, health insurance companies and medical providers are obligated by federal law to provide interpreters for their patients who need them. So we have relationships actually with the medical providers as opposed to the individuals who need the service. And they make the requests to our company. And then we send the interpreter to that appointment to interpret everything that the doctor or nurse, et cetera, is saying. How did you get into this business? This is very, very unique, it seems to me. It is. And believe it or not, it started with a trip to Costco one day. Um, Doesn't everything. <laughs> I, um, I spent five years as a practicing attorney. And uh, about four years into that, I, I knew that this was not going to be my lifetime career. I wanted to transition into business. But 
Um, I'm the kind of person who likes to be prepared and, and uh, do my research before making the leap. And yeah, so, I never would have picked up on that interacting <laughs> with you. Um, so what I, I had a, at four-year mark, I had the opportunity to take a part-time job as a staff attorney um, with a court. And so that gave me Tuesdays and Fridays off every week. And I spent, uh, the plan was to spend the year evaluating the business ideas that I had. And uh, several months into that process, I ran into uh, a guy named Jeremy Stallman that I went to high school with here in Atlanta. I went, we went to Dunwoody High School, go Wildcats. Um, and um, I told him all of what I just told you and also that I had moved to Chambly recently. And he said, you know, my mother has a business in Chambly. Maybe she's got some advice for you about starting a business. Um, so I went to go meet her. And um, the long story short is our conversation evolved from her advising me on how to start a business to her going, you know, I'm 74 and I'd like to retire. Could I persuade you to join my business instead? And she did. She's a good saleswoman. Obviously. So. How uh, how is practicing law? When did you know you needed to do something different? Because because I think you know transitioning that's a that's an important consideration here. You were you know you went to school to be a to be a practicing attorney. You had some experience, and then you decided, hey, I I need to move in another direction. Sure. So I worked for two small firms. They were both solo practitioners before I came along. Both incredibly bright, incredibly hardworking, um, but also both, you know, 15 or 20 years older than I was. And it appeared to me that it was just a difficult slog to be an attorney. And the the work of an attorney is difficult to leverage. And frankly, I just wanted to work smarter, not harder in either in an industry with a service that could be leveraged more easily or a product. And um, so I just knew that I wasn't any smarter or harder working than those two. And I, I just couldn't see myself doing that for the next 30 years. And I will say that one experience that I had earlier in my life really helped me to leave law because people thought I was crazy. You know, you just went to law school, you have all these student loans, you passed the bar, you did all these things and you're just going to walk away. You know, how um, are you crazy? And my first career path was actually um, to be a college professor. I was in a joint master's PhD program studying criminology and um, about a year and a half into the program, at that point, I had learned what it was like to be a professor and I decided this was not for me. And that was a difficult decision to make. And afterwards, I realized that quitting was okay. And because of that, um, I was able to ultimately quit the practice of law and I'm I'm now in a position where I'm I'm very excited. And I love the idea of learning this business and business generally and the many, many doors that it opens for me. So um, I've forgotten the question at this point. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hopefully no, that I, covered it. No, it, it, it covered it. And I, we were, I was wondering about the transition from law into your current business. And it seems to me, you know, there, there must, because of your training, because of your high level of intellect, there must be some things that you've learned that you can leverage having been trained as a lawyer in your current business. Is that true? Absolutely. Being a lawyer teaches you to be extremely thorough. Um, that was my nature already, but it it teaches you a lot about business in a, in a way. Uh, I worked for small businesses, so I saw the way that those operated. Um, I also had um, 
worked for clients who had small businesses, evaluating contracts for them. Uh, So those are certainly some skills that I put to use in my work today. Um, But a lot of what I learn about business, you know, there's a lot of intuition and gut that you have to use for it. Um, Working hard, I can never say enough for that. Um, But also my husband and his family, they're all very entrepreneurial. So I, I draw a lot from them as well as from reading and listening to podcasts. I think it's uh, commendable that you uh, had the strength to transition both from trying to be a professor. I I don't look at it as quitting, frankly. You know, it's transition is, I think, is a more accurate term. And I think that's very intelligent on your part. Why? I mean, why do something that, hey, you know in your gut is not for you? And it seems like that was the case, right? Yes, exactly. And then, you know, the I mean, that's what a smart person does, in my opinion. Well, thank you. You know, um, in the moment, it's hard to see that necessarily. Um, quitting is scary when you're in the moment. But afterwards, you look back and you think, thank goodness I did that. Well, you can certainly be, you know, provide sound advice for people that are transitioning or, you know, are looking at a line of thinking or, you know, some reasoning there. What, how is technology? affected what your company does? So at present, um, I'd say we've, we've just had to add serve the company. I was I joined uh, November of 2017, so just about six months ago. Um, so I was not involved in the adding of services to allow for uh, more technology-based interpreting and translating. Um, but to this point, that's where technology has affected the company and the industry. But Going forward, there are huge questions about the industry and how much artificial intelligence is going to play a role uh, in both translation and interpretation. And it's very scary. You know, they, um, I sort of waffle personally between this sort of fear that it's coming more quickly than we anticipate. And then also this sort of coming back down to earth, hopefully, uh, which says, you know, yes, the technology is coming, but it takes time to transition. You know, our clients are industries that are usually sort of later in terms of adopting new technologies because they have to be very sure that the new technology is working. When you're talking about someone's um, physical health or their legal status, whether they'll be incarcerated or even the death penalty, you know, you have to be pretty darn sure that that interpretation device is as accurate as a human would be before they're going to be willing to commit to that. So I think we have some time, but uh, we'd also be foolish not to be thinking about how to incorporate the new technologies into our business and how we need to evolve uh, with it. Won't there always be a requirement, a human requirement, you know, someone like you or someone like you, you know, uh, somebody that works for your organization to kind of provide and fill in the blanks for the technology? You know, um, if I knew that, I think I'd be the most wanted lady in the industry. Um, it it sure feels that way, at least for the the near future. Um, but I don't know; anything is possible, and I don't have the background in in AI or technology to really fully understand just how close we are. Um, but you know, we'll probably see a shift into an area where we have machines doing it, and then humans sort of on the back end reviewing the work of the machine so that the volume of work the human is doing is lower, um, but not zero. Who would your ideal 
target client be? So um, any client, uh, we welcome you to contact us. Um, but our, our ideal client is, is probably a, a, a larger one, mostly because that way we get to um, learn their needs and really be the best agents of customer service that we can. You know, we have some clients that um, the owner, Phyllis Stallman, has had since the beginning mm-hmm. in 1998. Um, and as a result, we know exactly what they need before they need it. And we're able to just prov- provide excellent service for them. Um, and of course, the larger the client, the, the higher the revenue as well, which works great for us because it allows us to work to secure the best interpreters because we know we're going to have work to keep them busy and we can uh, keep them happy. and on our roster. So would clinics and hospitals, would they be good ideal clients or? Um, yes, definitely clinics and hospitals, um, other health insurance providers who have an even wider swaths um, of territory. Um, we really like working with the county court systems um, and also the public schools. We do a lot of um, work with them where it's parent-teacher conferences usually is what it is. Um, so both for special education students and other students. I wish my teacher would have spoken Spanish during uh, my parent-teacher's conferences, because <laughs> then uh, my parents wouldn't have been able to be fully clued in on what I was up to or not up to, more importantly speaking. But uh, just a fascinating business. Are, 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 are dental offices, are they good clients for you? or? Um, sure. Yeah, they. We certainly have some dental offices um, as clients, and um, we'd we'd be happy to help them. So, someone who need your services, obviously, they don't speak English as a first language. They need somebody to interpret, you know, medicine matters or legal matters. Do you do a lot of work legally? A lot of interpreting for legal matters. So, yes, a, a lot of our work is um, actually in the court systems themselves. So at hearings, um, having interpreters there uh, from start to finish. Um, But then we also work with attorney's offices um, doing depositions or uh, translation of documents that might be relevant to the case. Um, Really just anything they need. Occasionally, um, they'll have us um, interpret meetings between the attorney and the client. Um, Sometimes, though, they'll go with a friend or family member for those meetings, but for the official depositions and hearings, um, you need a professional interpreter. So what's it like to transition to take on someone else's business? It's a big responsibility. Um, So Phyllis started the company in 1998 uh, in her basement. Um, A few years after losing her husband, she had a young son, Jeremy, who I mentioned. and there was a layoff at her work. And so she decided to um, just take control of her financial life. And she started this business uh, very bravely and um, grew it, outgrew her basement. I think she had six people working in her basement at one point. Um, Then they moved to an office in Doraville. And then three years ago, outgrew that. And we moved to downtown Chambly. And this is, she calls it her baby. And uh, she's she very much loves her business, loves the industry, loves the interpreters, her clients. And so um, it's a very big responsibility. I'm honored to be in the position that I am, that I'm in. Um, and I must also commend her for giving me a lot of freedom to follow my vision and not be so tethered to hers. Um, it's been a, a tremendous experience so far, and I'm 
I'm just so excited to see where we're going. What do you like best about what you do? I have to say, at least at present, um, I'm learning so much about um, about business. I'm learning a lot from Phyllis. I'm learning a lot from my colleagues who are all, um, there's very low turnover at our company, which is uh, a testament to how it, it's run. Um, but I think that that has been excellent as well as the service of interpreting and translating is um, a very heartfelt one. It, you're helping people when they're in typically a vulnerable position um, and they would otherwise not understand what was happening. And without a professional interpreter or translator, they could be very negatively affected. Um, one of the things that's been interesting to look back on is that my work as an attorney, I feel like I was an interpreter of sorts. I'm helping them to understand the legal language that they did not understand. Um, and that just is sort of um, analogous to the work that I see the interpreters and translators doing now. So it's very good work. You seem to have, uh, your organization seems, based on what you've said here, they, you have business in the public schools, you have business in the court system and business in the medical arena. Is there one aspect of your business that resonates more with you than another or one that you like doing more? Um, you know, I, I certainly feel most closely connected to the legal work given my background as an attorney. Um, so there's that piece, but I think in the medical side as well, the, the same vulnerabilities exist and it just feels good when we know that we are sending a qualified interpreter in there to help them through whatever medical challenge they're facing. Um, How many employees does your organization have? We have 11 employees um, and they are, you know, primarily doing scheduling and accounting work. Um, but then we have, you know, hundreds of independent contractors who provide all of the interpreting and translating work. Other than we talked a little bit about AI, artificial intelligence, what other changes have you had to make since you took over, you know, last November? Or what changes do you foresee? Sure. Um, again, this is, this is the big question of our industry. And so in six months time, I, I have not been able to make those big decisions about which direction we're heading. At this stage, um, what I've been focusing on is really learning the business itself, learning the industry. And we're going through kind of a, not a reorganization, but a little bit of a, a remodeling, um, kind of adopting new software uh, for scheduling, mm. uh, getting our scheduling software to communicate with our accounting software, doing little things to help uh, make us more efficient um, so that we can better service our clients um, more efficiently. With, with, relation, uh, with regard to business development, how are you getting new business? So... New business comes to us in several ways. We have to monitor um, RFPs to see what um, county you know, schools sure. or uh, other agencies are needing our services. So that's definitely a big one. Um, another is just getting out there and networking. Um, you know, any business could use our services, whether it's to translate their website or manuals that they have for their employees. There is probably a need for every business out there. Um, so really, I 
when I first came into it, I started thinking from the standpoint of meeting people and trying to get a sale. I quickly learned that that's not the way to do it. It's just to meet people, get to know them, uh, build relationships, and and the business will come. So that's been my personal approach. I'm not very comfortable in a uh, more traditional or caricature version of a salesperson. So um, I, and actually, I think that's what you're doing, Corey. You're building relationships um, and let that lead your business. You've started a group for women business owners. Uh, tell us about that. So um, about a year ago, when I was still planning to start my own business, um, I wanted to be around other women like me. I didn't have any friends who had started businesses um, or family members. So I I really wanted to be around other business owners and, and specifically women. And I could go downtown or midtown and go to groups there, but I wanted to not have to travel very far. And so I posted on nextdoor.com and I said, does anyone know of a group nearby? And about 50 people responded and said, no, but I'm interested. So if you start one, let me know. And so um, out of that uh, was born what we call the village. Uh, we meet once a month um, and we bring in a speaker for lunch and uh, on a topic relevant to small businesses. And then we operate out of a Facebook group. So um, throughout the month, people can post issues they're having or books they read and um, other resources so that um, within our small community of kind of Shambly and really close nearby, um, we have resources. And it's been tremendous. We have this little... Um, network of, of women. And I run into them because they're in my neighborhood and, and it's just terrific. That's great. You've, um, we appreciate that. If you could advise the younger version of you five, 10 years ago, give, give her some advice. What would you tell her? I would tell her to do a better job of believing in herself. I was always the person who wanted to you know, study for the test or prepare. And that's still with me, but um, it was hard for me to think about taking the leap and believing that that those opportunities were for me and not for other people. So I would certainly say, believe that uh, you are are worthy and, and good enough. Um, along the same lines to, to take risks. Um, again, I've just always been pretty calculated in my moves, although it's working so far, I guess. Um, and lastly, the, the thing that I've adopted lately is done is better than perfect. I have this sort of paralysis by analysis that, um, <laughs> that gets me a lot, but I, I'm working on it and I am getting better. And I would recommend the book, um, Paradox of Choice, to anyone who also suffers from that. It really helped me. If there was a young lady that wanted to follow in your career path, what would you tell her? So Katie used the word perseverance in her answer, and that is certainly the one that stands out for me at the top. I think that, you know, there's always going to be someone smarter than you in the room, uh, more creative, but the thing that really gets you moving forward and apart from the crowd is that grit, that perseverance. Um, I'd also say that opportunities are everywhere. You just have to open your eyes and be willing to grab them. Um, and Another is that networking begins now. Um, you know, the, a relationship that I had in high school has now given me the opportunity that I'm in now. And um, I rely a lot on folks that I've known over the, the many years. And I've been fortunate that I, you know, I'm a, an Atlanta native. So um, a lot of relationships that I've had from various points are, have come in uh, handy. Um, lastly, I would say the world needs leaders. 
why not you? Well, Lindsay, you've been a tremendous guest. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you either via email or phone, uh, how would they do that? So Lindsay Cambardella, I'm the only one. If you can spell it, you can find me um, on LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, and then translationstation.com is our website. We also have a Facebook page. And uh, my email is lindsay with an E at translationstation.com. Lindsay, been a tremendous guest also. Thank you again to Rhonda and Katie. It's been another great Tuesdays with Corey. Appreciate it. Drive safe. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, just real quick, the uh, Tuesdays of Corey would not be made possible without the long-term care planning group. So Corey, if someone wanted to learn more about the long-term care planning group, where would they do that? Well, they could email me at Corey, C-O-R-E-Y at, and this is all one word, the longtermcareplanninggroup.com or they could go to the website at www.thelongtermcareplanninggroup.com. Well, great. Thank you guys all for listening and we will see you all next time on Atlanta Business Radio.